0: Welcome to the Vine Life Podcast. We're a church in Manchester who love Jesus, each other, and our city. Catch up on this week's message and more. All right. Um, going to do something weird. Get get your hands out. Okay, show me your hands. Now, um, have a little look at your hands. It's all right. Keep looking at them. You know that whole phrase... Like the back of your hand. Do you know the back of your hand? Now's a little chance to have a little look at it. But just, yeah, just have a little look at your hands. Think about where they meet the world, what goes on, how these things help you interact. Then maybe close them as tight as you can. And just... Keep looking at that fist. What does that? What does that fist feel like? What does that? What does that bring? It? Do you want to do something with that fist? <laughs> Maybe don't. <laughs> but um. But genuinely, it's just think what, what. Just even how your body is right now. How does that make you feel? What does that? What kind of questions does that bring? It? What kind of emotions? What kind of experiences does that make you think of? Just just hold it as tight as you can. And then open it. How does that feel? What does that make you think of? We're starting a series today called Open Hands. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. And the reason we want to do it, there's multiple reasons, but probably two main ones. First, it's this idea of you know the, the nature of life is we, we can't plan for everything we can't know the answers to everything we can't get everything right all the time and we shouldn't even try but um, one of the things that can be really helpful is um, is postures that we assume so when when we're coming into the world whether that's church work life relationships like kind of kind of how we how we are our ways of being our sort of our posture is huge because that's probably going to have a, a massive impact on on how we show up. And um, Dallas Willard talks a lot about discipleship. is It's not necessarily, um, it's not behavior management. It's not learning how to do all the right things um, in order that we might get to heaven one day. It's becoming the kind of people that are like Jesus. And we really think that this um, this posture of openness, of having open hands, is going to be huge um, it's, it's always huge, but it feels like it's going to be particularly significant in this next season. Just as as we learn as we learn how to be like Jesus, and um, and we're going to look at various different things that might might feel like sort of um, that they wouldn't pin together thematically necessarily, but actually they're going to really help us understand what it means to be open-handed, because we want we want as a as individuals and as a family to to adopt this posture. And it become a way of being in the world that we move from, from this kind of thing, tight, grasping, holding, pulling in to that. Even just doing it again there, it just feels amazing. And so, so we want to consider what it means for us as individuals and us as a church to be open-handed. And we've got various little things that we're super excited to, to look at over the next couple of months. But as well as that posture helping us to become the kind of people that we feel like Jesus is calling us into, actually, again, I think this is always the case, but how much more at the moment is this going to be a witness to the world? Actually, that so much of life around us is about that. It's about grasping in. It's about sitting in the cold until December, if you can make it. It's that, and which we would it's that posture of lack and fear, and pulling in and looking after ourselves and sorting one like thinking of ourselves first. That that feels like it's probably always the prevailing wind of culture, but it feels particularly heightened at the moment. And actually, I think it's a real challenge for us to not um, to not be sucked into that, and not just because it's you know it's it's bad or wrong. Like there's all sorts of totally good reasons like why these things exist. But when God calls us to be a city on a hill, a light to the world, I think this is part of what it looks like. We think so much about all our amazing, our amazing projects and plans and um, how we're going to you know, redeem culture and do all this stuff. And, and I'm for that. I'm well up for that. But thinking about Revelation 12, you know, um, it says, and they conquered him, the enemy, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives unto death. Victory comes for God's people because of the blood of Jesus. Because of our witness to it. Our stepping into that story. Our declaring it to the world. And a recognition that actually the ultimate thing that would bring fear and doubt. And and closeness. That idea of death, the end. Actually that is not even a challenge for us anymore. That ultimately we trust that the glory of God is that we will live eternally with him. And actually, as people in this world, we can be people that are living with that hope. That actually good is coming. It's here and now. Surely I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. But it's also to come. And we need to be these these future people that are carrying hope. And that actually anything that that the powers and principalities, the world would seek to, to sit on us. Actually, even that cannot hold us. So we want to be people of open hands. And and today we're going to look at Jesus. We're going to look at how Jesus was the open-handed king. So, um, so I'm just going to pray, and then we're going to look at Philippians 2. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for all that you've done for us. And Lord, I pray that by your spirit this morning, you'd be moving, you'd be revealing truth to us, and you'd be showing us about where we can step into it. So take this time and use it as you would will. Amen. Awesome. Right, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Philippians 2, um, starting at verse 3. Uh, I'm going to read it out. As well, uh, it's going to be on the screen and I've uh, gone for NLT just because uh, it's very conversational. I think it's quite easy to listen to in this setting. So um, start at uh, verse three. But before I do, just to kind of a little heads up on this passage. It, um, this is actually probably one of the most crucial passages in the Bible. So even before the, the Gospels as we have them existed and were written down, because initially they were just passed down as part of oral tradition, um, this, what we're going to read today, existed in print already. This, um, from verse 6 onwards, um, is, is actually a hymn that the first church used to sing. Or I don't know if they sang it. I imagine they did. But um, this, it was a kind of a, a piece of writing that was like a foundational bit of Scripture for the early church. And actually... As you, as you read through all of Paul's letters, this little thing we're going to read today is kind of like the key that unlocks it all. The Basically, the idea that we would be like Jesus and that this is ultimately what Jesus is like. So it's huge. I think you basically any talk in any sermon in any setting could fit with Philippians 2 because it just makes so much sense. It's so challenging, but it's also amazing. So hopefully um, we'll get a lot out of it this morning. So verse 3, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, which was this. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. So Paul's calling us: Don't be selfish. Don't look to your own interests, but humble yourself, put others first, and more than that, just being like a good moral Christian thing to do. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus, who who is God, who who is the Word at the beginning, who is in perfect relationship with the Trinity he did not think of that as something that he needed to grasp and hold to himself, but actually would, would pour it out, would humble himself, would, would be born into poverty, would to live an anonymous life, would ultimately be despised and hated and crucified. But that through that actually God would, would bring glory to his name. Like that's the attitude we're supposed to adopt. And there's uh, three Greek words that we're going to learn this morning. Um, so say these after me. First one is isotheo. isotheo. Very good. Second one, harpagmon. Harpagmon. Excellent. And the third one, kenosis. 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 I feel like that should be like a band or something from the 90s. Hey, we're kenosis. Um, it probably is. There's almost certainly a Christian band called Kenosis on Spotify somewhere. We should, we should go and check them out. So um, we've got Isotheo, Harpagmon and Kenosis. We're going to start with Harpagmon. So this, uh, in verse 7, um, no, at the end of verse 6, sorry, it, in the, new, the translation I just read out, it, said, it talked about, um, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to or to be grasped at. So Harpagmon is, is that, that is Harpagmon, it's the grasping. And um, and it's there's probably numerous ways that we can think about um, what this is like. If, if you imagine a politician, if they were kind of running a campaign and looking to get elected for something, maybe there's a fundraiser happening. Uh, they might walk into the room and then they're sort of moving around the room and they're sort of chatting to all the special interests, working out who's got money, working out who's got influence and power and, you know, who needs to be um, talked around. And what they're doing is they're are harpagmoning around the room. They're walking around and they're pulling in the, the resource that's in the room, the power, the influence, and they're pulling it in for their advantage in order to advance their thing. So that's that they're grasping what is there and taking it to be used for that campaign. Um, we could also think of it with um, with this guy. So uh, we had Narnia last week. We've got some Lord of the Rings this week. Um, so we've got over here, we've got Schmeagle. Actually, it's already started at this point. So um, he, uh, he's just killed his best mate for a little ring um but obviously it's the ring of of power it's this this thing that has just already he's just found it in a river and it's consumed him and he wants it so much he probably doesn't even know what it is but he wants it so much that he's prepared to murder his friend um and then obviously oh sorry Come we have it back uh, and then that's him right at the very end uh, Even to death he's loved his ring and he's ho- he's literally going into the fire dying with it it's not going to help him he can't use it and he's just, and we see we see the sort of a very pictorial image of Harpagmon. like this thing was so important to him that nothing else mattered he just and he grasped it and he held on to it and it consumed him and it and it took over him in his um address at the funeral of queen elizabeth justin welby said this people of loving service are rare in any walk of life leaders of loving service are still rarer But in all cases, those who serve will long be remembered, will will be loved and remembered when those who cling to power and privileges are long forgotten. Even, we know that grasping isn't good. And we actually, we esteem those who don't do this. But it is ultimately almost just like the very air that we breathe. The fact that people will just jump over one another to get what it is that has consumed them and that what they feel they need. So, how um, harpagmon could look like loads of different things. It could look like, you know, power, influence. And, and, and those quite obvious examples when they talk about politics or leadership or magical rings. But um, it can also, it can look like all sorts of things. Just ha- like, ha- you know, I talked very briefly last week about how we try and control our relationships. Or maybe just try and bring, just through a lack of whatever, just try and clutch. Sorry, I can't think of any way better articulating than just doing that. But hopefully we know that that is something that is, is very close to all of us all the time, that, that Harpagmon. But go back a little bit at the start of verse 6. Um, so he says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God. So this is where Isatheo comes in. So Isatheo. That's the equality with God. And firstly, this is really interesting because it was a very bold political statement that the early church was making. Because actually the word Isotheia was used in the first century, but it was used by Caesar to describe himself. And what Caesar was doing was saying, look at me, I'm almost like this, this thing, this... This mortal that has been elevated to this status that is, I am equal with God. The, the picture of Caesar's face on the coin, that was, them. he's saying, I'm Isotheo. As far as everyone else is concerned, I'm, I'm as good as God here. So for Christians in a persecuted environment to refer to Jesus as the Isotheo, that was a huge deal. They're saying, actually, no, there is, there is one who is higher than you. And even, I, just, I heard something on the radio about Queen Elizabeth, and it was amazing. She's like, ultimately, she knew that there was someone else to whom she bowed the knee. And so right from the outset, was, the church was built on there is a king of kings, and his name is Jesus. But also, it's, it's interesting in this context, because it's saying that, actually, Jesus was equal with God. He wasn't just a human that had got beyond his station. Jesus was equal. He is God. He is the true Isotheo. And that's interesting because when we think about, okay, well, we're not supposed to harp Agmon. Actually, if anyone was going to help do that, it was Jesus. If anyone could do it, it was him because he is actually qualified to do that. But he doesn't. And that's what we get in... um, Verse 7, it said he gave up his divine privileges. He humbled himself. And it's this is the idea of kenosis. <laughs> what have you got going on over there, Moses? Tell the class. <laughs> um it's this idea of kenosis. So Jesus was the isotheo, and but rather than grasp, rather than pull everything into himself, he did the opposite. He did kenosis. He emptied himself. That's what kenosis means. It means empty. He poured himself out. He humbled himself. Rather than just enjoy that privilege that was being in the Godhead, the perfect love, joy, peace for eternity. Rather than just cling onto that and enjoy it for himself, he instead he humbled himself and became a human. He poured himself out. There's another way of understanding the word kenosis, as well as just being poured out. It's the idea of, of self-limiting. The idea that you could fill a space and you don't. So whereas the politician will walk into that room and get everything he can from it, Jesus chooses to stop and not take up the fullness of everything that was owed to him or was his right. Stephen has described it as almost like, imagine a bath filling up and then it just stops halfway and then there's this space. And so much of what we see in Jesus' ministry and, and even how we've, we experience him is, is someone who, who makes space. who invites the orphan and the widow and the child and the lost and the lonely and the dishonored in. Says, you are you come and you're welcome with me. So the Isothia, the one who is equal with God, who had every right to take everything for his own, chooses to limit himself. Not my will, but yours be done. And then verse 9, therefore, God elevated him to the highest place of honor gave him the name of above all names. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So not only is this, this just an admirable thing that Jesus is doing, this is actually, this is how God wins. This is his plan. This is how he brings about the coming of his kingdom. It's not through power and influence and all the things that we would naturally esteem. But sacrifice, love, humility, service, all those fun, exciting words. That's how God brings glory to his son and will ultimately usher in his kingdom. That's why Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's why he washes the feet of his disciples, you know, taking up a place of dishonor. He's despised and hated and spat on and and stretched out his hands and, and dies because ultimately that is how God communicates his forgiveness and his love and ultimately his overcoming of all that stuff in Jesus raising from the dead and being glorified. And it's like, it's easy to be like, this is a weird way of doing this. Why? Like, surely God, there was a better way. And it's almost easy to be like the disciples when they saw Mary crack the alabaster jar and, and waste that hugely expensive perfume just on anointing Jesus. And she'd be like, ah, oh, isn't that a waste? Couldn't we have done something better with that? And you're like, it feels like a bit of a waste of the life of Jesus just to pour it out. What kind of King is that? It feels, it feels a bit, it feels a bit silly, but then you, you think about it and you think about what God's done for us and, and how that's changed our lives. And you think about actually those things that remain the faith, hope and love and the you know, power and influence that ebbs and flows, empires come and go, but those are the things that last. And then you just think, man, what kind of king is Jesus? What kind of king is this man who had everything but poured it out for us? Poured it out to show that love and forgiveness and humility, they are the things that last. That it's the meek that will inherit the earth what an amazing king and what i love about this is he didn't just do it to make a point in order to be like look at this really noble way of living that i'm going to embody for you he did it first and foremost for me for you so that actually we could we could have forgiveness so that we would come back into god's family so the things that were separating us from God would no longer be a problem. You know, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Jesus did this for you. So you could know him. And he also did it for us. So that we could see what it's like to be like him. Like it's um, like, it is amazing that actually, at the, the our furthest point away from God, He says, "Even when you were in the depth of sin, I loved you, and I made a way for you to come home." Think about the prodigal, um, the prodigal son, and the, and the father who rushes out to meet him. God's God's posture towards us is, "I'm coming towards you, no matter what, um, no matter what." Um, dishonor and disgrace and pain and heart. However, hard it's going to be so hard for me, but I'm coming towards you because I want you in my family. And Jesus did that for us and he scoops us up. And that's something we, we just will never get over. We will just like, thank you, Jesus, that you rescued me, that you loved me, that you came for me. Thank you that you saved me. And if if that isn't you, if you haven't said yes to Jesus, if you don't know him, there's no king like Jesus, like he is the Lord of Lords. He, he was God, but he knows you. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He loves you and he's for you. And wherever you are in that journey, whether you feel close to him or, f- or far from him, you can always just turn and say, Jesus, yes, I want to be with you. I want to be your son. I want to be your daughter. That is always open to us. But what I love as well is, and, and Paul sets this up in the, the verses 3 to 5. He's just like, yes, this is what Jesus, this is who he is, and this is what it's like, and, and, and it means we can be in his family. But also, this is what it looks like to live like him. This is what the posture of our lives should be. That actually, there is, there is that moment of salvation when we, when we come into God's family, but there was also a process of sanctification, of being made constantly more and more like Jesus. Like it, that's, that's why Christianity, is not a, it's not about, you know, getting a barcode on your arm so that when you go through the scanners at heaven's gates, they say, yes, you can come in. Like Jesus has fullness of life for us now. And that looks like transformation That looks like becoming the people that he's called us to be. That looks like the reordering of society around him as Lord to be like he always intended. There is a a process that God has been enacting and will continue to enact where he is changing and transforming. And this Philippians said, this is our model. This is for how we access it. This is how we grow as individuals and how we share that light with the world around us is we don't. See what we have as something to grasp and hold on to, but we, we lay it down, we pour it out for the benefit of others. We're just going to read um, some stuff from Romans 8. Um, so again, it should just come up on the screen. Starting at verse 10. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the spirit gives you life because you've been made right with God. The Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. Yes, so good, right? And J.I. Packer describes the fact that we're adopted into God's family as the highest blessing of the gospel. You know, we need to be justified. We need to be made right with God. But that's sort of like the doorway in. But actually, the whole point is that we are sons and daughters who are accepted into God's family. And that is incredible. We haven't finished verse 17. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. And these two things aren't opposite. They're like this, this paradox that holds intention that, yes, we are God's kids. We are his heirs. We're his co-laborers. He's using us to build his kingdom. We are, um, he couldn't think any higher of us. We are seated in heavenly places. We are, you know, we are becoming, stepping into the glory of Jesus. We will share in Jesus' glory, but we must also share in his suffering. As Jesus himself said, you know you need to pick up your cross and carry me. Pick up your cross and carry me. Pick up your cross and carry it every day. And it's it's two sides of the same coin. And and it, it's it's hard to read that verse, and sometimes because suffering is such a big concept, and what what, what does this mean? And it, does God send suffering to teach us things? And no, I don't believe He does. What I how I read this, particularly in the light of Philippians 2 is that actually that suffering is that, is, is that, is being prepared to open ourselves up, to humble ourselves, to think of others as better than ourselves, to not see the rights and privileges and advantages that we have as things to grasp and use for ourselves, but to use for the benefit of others, which is hard. It sounds amazing on a Sunday morning, but it's hard. You know, and like I said already, Jesus he had to wash dirty people's feet. He had to come in on a donkey. He was beaten and whipped and spat at. Humility costs, but it's the way of the kingdom. And in, 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 in choosing that as our posture, we're actually choosing to step into the way of Jesus and choosing to step into that same process of glorification that God has already shown us, that same resurrection that is happening. It continues verse 18 and 19. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Other translations talk about creation groaning for the revelation of the sons of daughters of God. So not only is is this humility, this, this open-handedness necessary for us to step into the glory of God? Like actually, people out there are, are desperate to see it, to see, to see God reveal himself. And for whatever reason, he chooses to do that through us, through his sons and daughters. So, it, it, so it's about us, but it's also about so much more than us. Like actually, it's Christ in us that is the hope of glory. And so for the sake of the world out there, let us choose to follow the way of Jesus. To not grasp, but to live open-handed. Because I believe that God will use that to display his glory in his kingdom and call people to himself. There's this... um, John's done a load of work setting this series up and there's this quote that he found um, by a guy called Jared Boyd, which I I imagine you might hear more than once. And uh, I think it's just... It's really helpful. So we're going to read it out. Salvation within the framework of the earliest theologians is the gradual unifying of the human and God. We are being joined to the divine and have received the very spirit of God into our bodies as a down payment of the process that is unfolding in our life. We are being made like him. And so over the course of following in the way of Jesus, we can expect that suffering and heartache and loss of relationships and a whole host of other things, giving away our wealth, serving and befri- befriending the poor, etc., will slowly help us to learn that there is nothing in this life of ours that is really worth grasping onto, really worthy of grasping onto. And so we learn to let go and allow God's very own love to heal us and then pour out of us into the world. This is what Jesus means by eternal life. It's a particular kind of life that we only know how to live once we have learned that the life we thought we were building can be given up for this new life, which is slowly being transformed by love and grace and humility into something glorious. Let's read that last sentence again. It's a particular kind of life that we only know how to live once we have learned that the life we thought we were building can be given up for this new life which is slowly being transformed by love and grace and humility into something glorious. Now, Jesus said those who who cling to their lives will lose it. But those who are prepared to let it go will find abundant life. It's the grain of wheat that falls, the seed that falls to the ground and dies that produces great fruit. And ultimately, that's the call of Jesus on us. It's a call into sonship and glory, and a, but it's it's through death. It's through the letting go of the things that we imagined or thought were the most important, and actually then receiving what is even better. You know, I, one of my favorite pictures of the kingdom is when Jesus walks through the locked door when the disciples are in the upper room in John twenty. And it's rather than him being like this ethereal ghost that wisps through the keyhole, the reality is he's more real than it. He's more real than it. He's of, he's of greater substance. And I just know that as we adopt this posture of openness, of letting go of the thing, and it's, it's hard. It's hard. It's not easy. But as we do, we will find that there is something fuller and brighter and more substantial more real, because it's the God's kingdom. And so I guess our prayer for this next couple of months, for today, for and long into the future, is that, you know, whether in life or faith or relationships or finances or whatever, that we see our King Jesus. We see the life that he modeled to us. We step into that, and we move from this to this. When you stand up I'm going to pray. Jesus we love you. We thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that you showed us the way to abundant life. And at times, it's a way that doesn't feel like it makes sense. But God, we trust you. God, and there'll be days that we find this easy and days that we find it impossible. And I thank you that you love us the same. But Lord, would you help us to adopt a posture of openness? to be a people whose hands are open, who aren't grasping and show us even just little by little the little choices and thought patterns and things that we can do to start to say yes to that. And I pray that as we do, God, we would experience the abundant life that you promise. Father, thank you that there are limitless resources in heaven, that there is no lack with you. And I pray that as we learn how to open ourselves up to you to consider others better than ourselves, Lord, we would be blown away by your abundance. And Jesus, just remind us again that you, you came for us. That you emptied yourself for us so that we could know you, so that the world could know you. And just God, maybe we never lose the wonder of that. that the king who rode in on a donkey and was killed will be the king of kings that last forever. The king of kings to whom everyone else will bow the knee. So we love you, God. Trust you. We thank you for all you're doing in us. Amen. I hope you enjoyed today's message. If you want to find out more, head to our website, bindlife.co.uk, or follow us on Instagram. God bless. See you soon.